The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. The scripture reading for today is John 13, 31 to 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, in a little while, I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Yet new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You, Raj, you guys, you guys can have a seat. I love Raj for many reasons, but one of them is because he is a shining example of who we are here at the church. We take the gospel very seriously, but not ourselves seriously at all. I, uh, you, you definitely have a very careful group, not a careless group. Um, hey, before we jump into John 13 this morning, I want to pray again. I just want to pray for our brothers and sisters over at Covenant Presbyterian Church. Um, just as we were singing this morning. Um, just thinking that that body of Christ, I hope, um, is having a restful morning, um, as as restful as it possibly can be. I'm just uh, you know, especially thinking of the pastor over there as well as this is the first Sunday after the shooting. So let's just let's just take a, a moment and, and pray for them, and then we can jump into John. Lord, it's it's encouraging to sing these songs of of reminding ourselves of the rest that we have in you. The fact that we can think of the glories that are in heaven. Think of that, that moment when we are in front of your throne in eternity. All of our cares and tears and sorrows are wiped away. When our faith will be made sight. When we hope no longer because we can see it. We can experience it. We can feel it. We can taste it. And yet, Lord, this morning... I mean, every Sunday morning, but this morning, I, I, I know just the, the dear saints over at Covenant Presbyterian, this is a sorrowful morning. I was praying for um, the Scruggs family, especially as that pastor. Uh, just dealing with the sorrow of, of the loss of this week, all of the families, the, the, the six families dealing with it. But Lord, I pray that um, that church would feel your rest today, that they would feel your peace today, that they would be able to come after a crazy week that we have had, even though there's going to be crazier weeks to come, that they could come, and they could come before your throne and find just a respite where they could lay their burdens down from this week and their sorrows and their fears and their questions when the remnants of just the... Um, destruction still around them in the walls um, and the place. But Lord, I, I pray that it would be, as they're worshiping today, a time of rest. Lord, I also pray as we get to come before your word, that we would rest. Rest in who you are. Rest in who we're not. Rest in the realities that the only hope we have in life and death is found in Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, just be with us now as we look at your word. In your son's name, amen. John 13, we are once again entering the upper room. 
We get to continue in this discourse that Jesus is having with his disciples. Last couple of weeks, we've looked at the opening parable of the gospel. We've said it's this living picture of the grace and the glory of God on display. And this living picture, this parable of the gospel was marked by many things, but at the core, it was marked by humility and grace. We saw that Jesus washed his disciples' feet and then called them to wash each other's feet, that the humility and grace of the Father uh, was, had marked their lives, and so we were called to live a life marked by that same humility and grace. Well, I'd like to say that the illustrations are over and that we are going to get into more of the um, expositional part of this discourse where Jesus reveals who he is and more preaching part, but we have uh, one final illustration to go. Before Jesus speaks directly to his disciples and he really begins the discourse that he is, uh, as he's preparing them for his death, there's one more comparison that needs to be seen, and it's what we're going to look at this morning. The comparison that we're going to look at is the comparison between rejection and grace. A comparison between rejection and betrayal and grace and acceptance. You know, the pain of rejection and denial will is so easily overshadows the greatest of joys the, the 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 as much grace as possible and acceptance and yet when we look here in this text before we jump to what Raj read in 13 31 through 35 we have to deal with a very painful rejection and it's a rejection that we know is coming because we know the end from the beginning because we've heard these stories but it's a rejection that just flat shocked the disciples. So we have to back up some before we get to 13, 31 through 35, and we have to start all the way back in 18 where we left off last week because we have to look at the rejection and denial of Jesus by Judas. By Judas. It's kind of an elephant in the room. It's an elephant between Jesus and Judas. Jesus knew what Judas had on his heart. Jesus knew what was going to happen. Jesus understood when he, when he entered into this room what was going to happen. And yet, the disciples were completely caught off guard. We're going to read this section, John 18 through um, 31 through 30. We're going to read it kind of in chunks, and I'm going to walk through it just to um, help break up our sermon for, for today. So look at John 18, or John 13, 18. Now, I'm, I'm not speaking of all of you. Now, just to kind of give us some background, again, Jesus is giving this illustration of washing one another's feet, and we looked at last week that, okay, if I washed your feet, you should do this also. This is the command that I also give you. We looked at the last verse last week, 17. You know these things. Blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you uh, if, if you wash um, your neighbor's feet, if you give of yourself, if you sacrifice yourself in this way. And then Jesus says, I'm not speaking of all of you, for I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Jesus announces in this moment that's supposed to be with friends. Again, consider there's 13 people in this room. 
These are the 13 people that have been traveling together for the last three and a half years. These were friends. These were confidants. They've struggled together. They've cried together. They've worried. They've, they've wondered what's going to happen. It's these 13 people. If there's, this, if there's a safe place on earth with Jesus, it should be with these 13 people. And here Jesus is saying, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. He announces his betrayal and sets in motion both the historical, looking at Jesus, and, and the cosmological, looking at Satan, conflict that will only find resolution in his death and resurrection. Just consider the language that Jesus has been using as he's entering into the upper room. My hour has come. He knows that. He knows that the last three and a half years that the ministry that is coming to earth has all been pointing to this time. My hour has come. And what we're going to look at in these verses is that it is a resounding now. We're going to see in a few short verses that Jesus is going to look at Judas and say, what you are going to do, do quickly. I mean, he is definitely saying, okay, now is the time. It's interesting, though, this verse that's quoted here in verse 18. It's that the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus is quoting from a psalm. It's Psalm 41. In the historical setting of Psalm 41 is that David is in anguish because he has been betrayed by his friend Absalom. Absalom kicked him out, out of the throne. He has caused this mutiny. David is running away from Jerusalem. Absalom is known as the faithless friend. And David writes Psalm 41 with his heart just broken because he's like, why has this happened? Why did the person that I trusted the most turn his back on me and kick me out and I lost my kingdom to him? So the Psalm of David is featuring the psalmist who is lifted up as a righteous suffering uh, uh, a person who is facing the opposition of this malicious enemy and bringing this false charge against them. And in Psalm 41, 9, it says this, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. I mean, David's like, even the guy I didn't see coming, even the person that I thought would keep me safe, he betrayed me. He lifted his heel against me. What's also interesting is just the very first time that I read through this passage and I got to that quotation, where my mind went was Genesis 3.15. That this serpent will crush the heel of the Savior, but the Savior will crush the head of the serpent. There's this idea that the, the the servant is the, the serpent, the Satan, the, the devil, the enemy is trying to crush our Savior. That's, that's been what this conflict that we've lived in constantly. The brokenness of this world is the darkness hates the light and is trying to overcome the light. And so what is the darkness trying to do? Every way, shape, and form is trying to kill the light. And they have had an all-out you know, just um, bombardment against righteousness from the very beginning, which is why we have things like shootings. Because if the devil can't beat Satan, what he, or if the devil can't beat Christ, what he can beat is the people that are made in the image of Christ. And so if he can kill people, well, that's one step of trying to just snuff out the light. Well, here, Satan, I guess, in some ways is like, okay, I think I can, I can win. But Jesus very clearly says, no, Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. But the psalm concludes, Psalm 41. That despite 
the opposition of Absalom. The psalmist is confident in God's intervention on his behalf because God delights in him and he will graciously raise him up and set him in his presence forever. This idea that one of Jesus' closest confidants is going to betray him shocked the disciples. They were like, what are, you, what are you talking about? Who? Who is going to betray Jesus? Who's going to betray the one that we love? I mean, we can see this. The disciples, this is verse 22 as we keep reading through this. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of who he spoke. Like, what? What are you, huh? Who? One of us? One of us is going to betray you? And on his disciple, on one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus, whom is he speaking about? In Mark 14, as we get Mark's account of this scene, it says this is Mark 14, 18 through 19. And as, it, as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, and one after the other, is it I? When Jesus is like, one of you is going to betray me, they're going, oh, is, is, is it me, Lord? I, I would never. You, you, you are the way, the truth, and the life. You are the Messiah. You're the Son of God. You're the one who has made all things. You are the miraculous one. Why would I ever betray you? These disciples couldn't conceive of such things. You see, the disciples knew that to betray a friend is one of the darkest experiences of the human reality. To betray somebody, even in the in ancient Near East, to betray a friend was considered an horrendous crime, but it was more horrendous to betray a friend whom you had shared bread with at the table. Just the act of eating together was this sign of, I trust you, I love you, I'm going to care for you, I'm going to protect you. And so the fact that after having that meal together, you're going to turn on that person was mind-blowing to them. So the fact that Jesus is having this meal and they're thinking this is the safest place, these are my friends and confidants, and Jesus turns around and says, one of you is going to reject and betray me they couldn't comprehend that. This is why this rejection and betrayal is so painful. And it's also interesting. Jesus is saying that the final blow, his final blow from an earthly perspective, we've got to put it in context, but his final blow is going to come from the inside. Just think about the journey we've been on with Jesus and how many people have tried to kill him. The chief priests and the Pharisees, trial after trial, sending people to arrest them, try to trap them, all these debates and confrontations. They have just tried to shut him up, and yet Jesus evades them all. It wouldn't be the Romans who were going to arrest Jesus because, you know, the Romans actually had the authority because they were, you know, in charge in Israel and Jerusalem. But it won't be the Romans that finally deal the last blow. And it won't even be the people of Jerusalem where that trapped him in some quadrant. No, the destruction of Jesus will be at the hands of one of his closest companions. It'll come from inside the camp. But there's a really interesting comparison that's happening here. With this, with this language and with, this, um, with these details. John describes, just briefly, the people sitting around the table. I just read it. It was verse 23. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved, this is called the beloved disciple, 
We see it three times in the Gospel of John. What commentators believe this to be is John himself. But John is so humbled by the fact that he has this friend, he's unwilling to go, me. I mean, he's so overwhelmed by the fact that my Savior loved me, the one whom Jesus loved, the one that Jesus had a relationship with, the one that they were intimately connected with. John's saying, okay, the one whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. Think back to last week where I referenced the, 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 the debate that was going on with the disciples prior to Jesus washing their feet. Who's greater? Who's going to sit at the right side and the left side of Jesus because those were the seats of honor? John demonstrates he's sitting at, at Jesus' side. He, in one sense, had that place of honor. It even goes that Simon Peter motions to him this no-name disciple, most likely John, to ask Jesus whom he's, he's speaking. Even notice like the motioning part. It's not that Peter asks, hey, John, can you ask him this? No, he's like, the confusion going on around the room is like, somebody's going to betray him. Like you can just hear the whispers and Peter goes, hey, can you ask him what, ask him what he's talking about over there? Like what's happening? And look what it says. So that disciple leaned back against Jesus. And you can almost hear just in hushed tones, Lord, who is it? Who are you talking about? Who's going to betray you? What? what? We, none of us would ever do it. It's this intimate moment where, you know, the, they're not sitting at this table like our dining room tables and chairs. No, they are reclining. He leans against his chest. Hey, what's going on? This intimate moment. So you know he's sitting right next to Jesus. And look what happens. Jesus answers, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Notice the seating order. Jesus is not going to dip bread and then walk down the table and put it in somebody's cup that is, you know, seated two or three or four seats away from him. If John's at his right side, you know who probably is at his left side? Judas. Just let that sink in for a minute. John, the beloved disciple whom Jesus loved, who had this intimate moment, who was right next to him, who could share in that fellowship, person probably sitting next to Jesus on his left is Judas. The person who's going to betray him. The elephant in the room. The person who's going to reject Christ, who's going to turn him over, who's going to stab him in the back, is sitting right next to Jesus. You know the question that I've been trying to answer all week long? is what this dipping the morsel of bread really did. Because look what happens. Look what this dipping initiates. Jesus answered him, it is is to he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. When he had dipped it in the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken this morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. The question I've been trying to answer is why now? What's up with the morsel of bread and the dipping and the handing and the, why is that the thing that initiates truly the hour has come? Why, why is it that this was the sign, this was the moment, this was the actions that, that allowed Satan to fully enter into Judas? 
but as much as I can figure it, I have an answer. I don't know why this was a cosmological event determined by the Lord to give Judas over. But make no mistake, it isn't that Satan won. It isn't that all of a sudden Satan found a crack and he, he took over Judas. No, Jesus allowed it. John ten eighteen says this, speaking of Jesus, no one takes it, speaking of my life, his life, from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. This scene of rejection is because Christ allowed it. Christ ordained it. Christ orchestrated it. Christ said, okay, now Satan, now you can come into him. Now is the time when the hour has come. Now all things can be complete. And, and we see it. What you are going to do too quickly. Now Jesus had this moment with John, his beloved disciple. And he said, well, the person who's going to betray me is the person that I'm going to dip the morsel of bread into my wine and I'm going to hand it to him. Judas left, verse 28. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that we should give him something or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. The rejection is complete. Judas leaves the disciples never again to return to this community. It goes from 13 to 12. And we're not going to see Judas for a while. It's going to be a couple of months till we get to John 18 and see him enter back into the story. But these disciples will, sh will see him again in a few short hours. I think it's important as we're going through the upper room discourse to keep that in mind. Jesus will be dead by the end of the next day. It's Thursday night. It's Thursday night. They think Jesus is still, his disciples still think that he is going to kick Rome in the teeth and he's going to come in and be the conquering king. And yet, within 24 hours, they're going to be laying his body in a tomb. In a few short hours, Judas is going to return and what he was going to do, he did do quickly. We see in this first part of this text, this rejection, this betrayal, this loved one stabbing Jesus in the back. But as the story goes on, we have a juxtaposition. We have a comparison. And that comparison is acceptance and grace. Because as the story goes on, we see that Jesus changes his focus. And he changes his focus to his true disciples. His, now, now everything in the Upper Room Discourse is looking at those who truly love, accept, honor Christ. This discourse is truly going to a discourse of, okay, now that you are my disciples, this is what you need to know and this is how you should live. And immediately as Judas, as Judas leaves, we see Jesus turn, let's say the corner on his, um, on his teaching. And he gives us a new command. 31, John 13, 31 says this. Now when he had gone out, 
now when his hour had come, you could almost put that in there. Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. What's up with this glorification language? I don't know what I was thinking about. I mean, now, now is the son of man glorified. This moment is the son of man glorified. I mean, there's this punctiliar um, action going on here. Okay, now that Judas has left, now that Satan has entered, now that he's going to go do what he was quickly going to go do, now is the son of man glorified. Judas has been this, the last barrier to the impending hour is removed. Now it is all coming to happen. But consider what this moment of glory looks like. I think it's important for us to consider this moment of glory and compare that with other moments of glory that we have seen in Scripture. You know, this moment of glory doesn't look like glory. And as this scene progresses, it's going to look less and less like glory from our perspective. Like when I think of a scene of glory, I think of Moses and the burning bush. Moses coming up to this burning bush, bewildered, why is this bush burning, but yet it is not consumed. And he hears from this bush, Moses, Moses, you're on holy ground, take off your shoes. We see just the, the, the bright light of this bush burning. I can sense that there's this, 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 this heat that is emanating from this bush. Moses just understands this is a, 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 a moment of glory. This scene is being glorified. He realizes I'm on holy ground, but that's not the glory we get here. There's no bright light. There's no magnificent splendor. There's no awesome display of power. I mean, in fact, again, going to the cross, Jesus looks weaker and weaker every step of the way. You see, the glory displayed here is far different than the glory that we normally think of. The, the glorifications in the Gospels have always been taken in a different form than first expected. Carson says this, just even thinking back to the prologue, it says, even in the prologue, the glorification of the incarnate word occurs not in a spectacular display of blinding light, but in the matrix of human existence. The glory of God is seen, again, not in this strong, mighty king that we think glory. He comes in this humble baby born in a manger to a, to a humble, no-name family and walks the earth not as this strong king, but as his humble servant. You see, all of this scene now brings to a climax a theme that's been developing throughout the gospel. John makes it clear that the supreme moment of divine self-disclosure, the greatest moment of displayed glory, was the shame of the cross. That's why we keep talking about just the paradoxes of the gospel, because when we think glory, we think strength and honor and might. When God says glory, he thinks of the cross. But notice this language here. Notice this language of now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Not only is Jesus glorified in God, but the God is glorified in the son. It's this connection here that we have to understand is happening. I guess Jesus is glorified because of God, but we see God's glory and honor and power because of the Son. You see, this language is pointing back to the knowledge that Judas and Satan has set his heart against Christ. But more than that, that God and Jesus are glorified because, I'm going to quote John 10 again, no one takes Jesus' life from him, but he lays it down on his own accord. 
You know, I said this section was marked by comparison and this juxtaposition between rejection and acceptance. In the one, this first part that we looked at, a broken, needy, desperate sinner, Judas, rejected God. But here, what we see is that a loving, gracious, glorious God accepts sinners. As we continue in this, that's what we see. What's the next two words? Little children. It, it carries this, this image that we see in like Romans 8, like Abba, Father. He's looking at his disciples and going, family, my kids. Judas says, I want nothing to do with you. He rejects him. Jesus looks at these sinners, and we're going to immediately see with Peter and his rejection, that Jesus understands their brokenness. And he goes, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me just as the Jews have. And so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, and you also ought to love one another. This language here of little children, it, it makes us think of family. But more than that, it makes us think of reconciliation and adoption. Because he only calls them family because he has chosen to make them family. He only calls them children because he said, I'm going to reconcile you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to call you as my own. He's looking out at these now 11 disciples. None of them deserve to be his family. They're all sinners. They're all broken. They've all done stupid things. They've all had stupid debates. They've all completely missed the point of everything going on here. And yet he looks out at them with grace. He says, children, part of my family. The reason I've come here is to reconcile you, to make you part of my family. Listen, I'm going to be with you for a, a while longer, but I'm going to go somewhere that you can't come. But when I am gone, I'm going to give you this new commandment. Because as his children, we have a very clear command to love one another. This verse here, these verses rather, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. And you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It, it's a, it's a, frankly, it's a, it's a well-known verse. It's one that we've quoted around here a lot. It's one that's close to my heart. It's this new commandment because it's so simple. A new commandment I give to you. Love one another just as I've loved you. And yet it's complex. It's simple because even the youngest of child can memorize and recite these words. But it's complex, it's profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly struck by how poorly we comprehend it and put it into practice. The, I mean, the simplicity of the command. Here it is. Love one another. Okay, my work done here. I'm going to go sit down. Love one another. That's it. That's the command. Love one another. You should love each other. Uh, you should love, I mean, it's very simple. Like, I, there's expounding upon that, and yet, here's the complexity. By standing apart from the law, this new and simple command is broad enough to encompass the complexity of all that the law is, because he gives us a new commandment, and yet specific enough to encapsulate what the law offers. You know, I want to ask a really basic question. 
Again, one that I've been considering this week. Is loving one another really a new command? That's what it says. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. I, I mean, I wonder if his disciples were like, okay, but that's not really new. I mean, we've heard that before. How's this a new command, Jesus? It'd be like if I told you today, I have something that is going to change your life, fundamentally change your life. You're going to have to do this, and if you don't do this, it's going to end in destruction for you. So I'm going to give you a new command today. You need to drink water. You're going to be like, uh, I knew that. I figured that out. I've done that some. That's why I'm here. If I quit doing that, you know, for three days, I hear that's, that's the longest somebody can go without water. Like, what? And we can even see in the Old Testament, like, Leviticus 19, 17 through 18, this is what's in the law. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Listen to this. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It would seem that this idea of love has been around for a while. In fact, to even go one step further, it would see that this is the basic foundation of the law of loving one another. So why does Jesus say here that this is a new commandment? I think this is the answer. I think it's a new commandment because of what the love reflects, because of why we love. You see, this love reflects a relationship, acceptance and grace, that this world has never seen. The reason we love now is different than the reason that people loved in the Old Testament. Or maybe we can understand why we love now better than how we could love in the Old Testament. Here's how Calvin states it. If I could just quote from Calvin, he's far, far smarter than I am. So this is a, 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 a little bit longer quote, but it's, it's, it's important. Just hear this. It is not just that the standard is Christ and his love. More, it is a command designed to reflect the relationship of love that exists between the Father and the Son. I think that's why he stated with now the Father is glorified and God is glorified in him. You know, this, the reason we love is to, again, reflect the relationship of love that exists between the Father and the Son. Back to the quote. Designed to bring about amongst the members of the Messianic community the kind of unity that characterizes Jesus and the Father. The next command is therefore not only the obligation of the new covenant community to respond to the God who has love for them and to redeem them by the, and, and redeem them by the gift of his son and their response to the gracious election which constituted them his people. It is a privilege which rightly lived out proclaims the true God before a watching world. It's kind of the sum up. The new part of this commandment is found in what this commandment communicates to those who are receiving the love. Look at this very simple language. Love one another. What comes next? Just as I have loved you. Think about how we like to love people. We like to love people based upon the way that we like to be loved. Even in Leviticus 19, what did it say there? Love your neighbor, how? As yourself, right? 
See, in our love, we, it's so easy for us to have this, I'm going to love you the way that you love me. I'm going to love you the way that I want to be loved. I'm going to love you based upon the way that you have responded to me and love me. So we can have this, I'll love you when you're lovable. I'll love you when you do enough for me to love you. I'll love you when you make me want to love you. We have this love that is this comparison, this tit for tat, this you do enough, then I'll love you. It's completely the wrong view of love. This love that we have here, you are to love one another just as I have loved you, so you also are ought to love one another, finds at its root grace and acceptance and humility and patience and joy and self-sacrifice. This command to love one another is horizontal in nature. Love one another. But it is only possible due to the vertical relationship that God has with us. You see, at its heart, this command, at the heart of this command is the idea that we will love one another because of the acceptance and grace that we have been given. Jesus says, love one another because of the love that I have given you. Now imagine that. Because I get it, this command of loving one another is hard. Because when we look out at a world that is fighting against us, when we look out at sinners that, that are still stuck in this body of death, and so they're going to be prickly at times, and they're going to even at times stab us in the back, and it's going to be difficult. When, when, when we look at loving sinners, it's really easy to go, well, no, they're not lovable. Even believers, they're not lovable. And yet God says, no, here's the new command, love one another just as I have loved you. And that love communicates to the world around you a love that is based not on this, you know, human comparison, I'm gonna love you when you're lovable. It's, it, it communicates to the world, my love is contingent upon my acceptance and grace from God. But I love this illustration that we get immediately after. And Peter didn't realize that he gave us this illustration of this acceptance and grace, but it is a perfect illustration of acceptance and grace in the next three verses. Simon Peter, bless him, was more concerned with this whole scene of where Jesus was going than what Jesus was saying. Because what we see here is that he's going to gloss right past the life-changing command to love one another. And he's immediately going to go to a, I'm never leaving speech. I'm better than that, Jesus. Because look what happens. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I mean, I love his heart of like, I want to be with you. I will lay down my life for you. I will die for you. I will do whatever I can for you. I'm going to follow you to, to the ends of the earth. I'm never going to reject you. I'm never going to deny you. I'm never going to do anything bad for you because you're my savior. He had a lot of confidence at this point. Jesus answered Will you lay your life down for me? Really? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. The reason I say that this illustration is about Christ's acceptance and grace is because this section highlights one resounding element. Christ's acceptance and grace is not dependent upon our loving faithfulness to him. Because this scene right here, we're going to come back to it at the end. The last chapter in this book, we get to see G Peter's reconciliation with Jesus. 
Because Peter thought, because this will come true, he will deny Christ three times before the rooster crows. I mean, just imagine, again, put that in time. So it's Thursday night. What are you saying? Before the sun comes back up, Peter, I know that you say that you're never going to leave me or reject me and everywhere you're going to go and you're on my side and you're on my team. And you're never gonna, before the sun comes up, Peter, you are going to deny me, not once, not twice, but three times, and I'm going to be all alone. And yet at the end of this book, we get to see Jesus not once, not twice, but three times show his loving, accepting grace for Peter and call him back to himself and go, Peter, what are you talking about? My love for you has never been contingent upon your faithfulness to me. And our in Christ's acceptance and grace of us is not contingent upon our faithfulness to him. You see, Peter, the rock of the church, he will deny Christ by the end of the day. All of his disciples will deny him by the end of the day. All of those who said, I will die for you and stay faithful, they will leave Christ alone. And yet the love that Christ is calling us to is not one, again, that's tit for tat, that because of this, I do that. It's a love that is unselfish, self-sacrificing, that finds its motivation not in what we do or get or receive from people, but in what Christ has done for us. Jesus reassures Peter that his faithfulness will not last. The most devoted disciple will reject Jesus. The beloved disciple will reject Jesus. But in the end, God will not reject us. You know, as, as we read in this gospel account, there's a lot of good intentions here in the upper room. But they're all soon going to disappear. Because they're going to they're gonna leave this room. And they're going to walk over to a dark garden filled with a hostile mob. And Jesus is still going to offer his love for them, even when they run from him. Jesus still offers your, his love to you, even, as, even if you've run from him. Even if you're at this moment, you're like Peter, and go, I'll never leave you, and then you turn around and go, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe that I've rejected him. I can't believe that I've doubted him. He's still going to love you. Because the reality that drives this love that he's talking about, if we can go back to this simple command, you should love one another, is that that love is driven by his love for us, not our love for him. He's faithful even when we are faithless. And the love that we're called to display to this world is not contingent upon this world displaying it in return. You know, the last couple of sermons, we've had these conversations of because the master sacrificed and served us, we are to sacrifice and serve others. Because the master loved us, we should love others. Because, uh, you know, we're, we're called to be living testimonies, living illustrations, living examples of this love that Christ has, has given us. It's so easy for us to look at the world, the darkness that's trying to overcome the light people that are blinded to the truth and say, you don't deserve it because you're not loving us. Yet this commandment, this new commandment that we have is not a commandment that's based upon what the world or our brothers and sisters in Christ do for us. It's a commandment that's based upon what Christ has done for us. We love not because 
He, he loved us not because we first loved him, but because he loved us. So our motivation does not come from anything other than Christ. As we turn our attention towards communion today, this really is what we get to remind ourselves of. But you're going to walk out of these doors this morning. You're going to enter a broken world, a hostile world, a world that is more and more hating Christians every single day because, quite frankly, it hates the grace that we, we get to proclaim. The darkness hates the light. And it can be so easy for us to have this us and them, have this embittered reality of why should we love them? Why should we care for them? Why should we give them grace? It'd be so easy for us just to put our, our hands out and say, we want nothing to do with you. If we're only looking at what, if we're loving based upon them. And yet what we're called to be, salt and light, testimonies of Christ's grace, what we're called to be is only possible if we look for the motivation, not in the outside, but in what Christ has done for us. And so we can come to the table this morning and just be reminded of that grace that we have been given. The acceptance and love that Christ poured out upon us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you're here this morning and you haven't placed your faith in Christ, I know this is um, you know, kind of an odd reality of looking at the juxtaposition between being those who reject Christ and those who are accepted by Christ. And if you're here and you go, I, I, I don't know which side of that coin I'm on. If you're wondering, I don't know whether I have tr- placed my faith in Christ. I don't know whether I am loving not to be loved, but loving because he has first loved us. I would just ask that you let this table pass you by. This table is not to save us. We don't take these elements to save us. We take these elements to be reminded of why we're saved. Because of his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his work. We take this table to be reminded that we can rest, not because we're perfect, not because we've done enough, but that we've placed our faith and trust in the one who was. And if you do have these elements pass you by, I'd love to talk to you after the service. I'd love to talk to you about the gospel. I'd love to proclaim to you the finished work of Christ, that you can rest not in what you have done, who you will be, how good you will become, but the fact that you can rest in who Christ is. I'd love to proclaim that to you so that you can have the joy of that salvation. Let's pray. We can take this table together. Lord, thank you for your word, for your love, for your grace. Thank you that we can... we can look to you for everything that we need. Lord, it's so easy for us to get caught up in that, that you know, spiral of thinking that we are, you only accept us because of what we have done. That we're only you know, as good as our last loving action. And yet, Lord, as we look at this new command, as we look at this at this, you know, story in, in the gospel, what, what we can be reminded of is that we are good with you. We have hope. We have life. We have joy. We have peace because of what you have done, because how you have called us your own, because how you have reconciled us and adopted us as your children. Lord, help us this week to rest in that reality. Help us this week to rest in the fact that we are loved because you've 
first loved us. And Lord, out of that reality, that amazing grace reality, help us to love one another. Again, not to earn anything, not to, you know, try to be, try to be more loving so that you will look at us as if we are more lovable, but out of an act of worship, recognizing that because you first loved us, we can love. Lord, be with us now as we take your table. In your son's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.